0: hey everyone duncan fletcher here the executive director pads back for another pads podcast i'm here with my uh colleague riding shotgun stephanie thorburn stephanie how you doing
1: doing great good afternoon excited for another riveting
0: podcast that's what we go for. We go for riveting, uh, to say the very least. So we're very fortunate to have with us here today, Dr. Becky Algram-Bettix. She's currently the Vice President of Mental Health and Wellness at the WTA. Welcome to the PADS Podcast, Becky. Thank
2: you so much for having me. Good to see you all.
0: Absolutely. Now, for those of you that don't know, um, I kind of feel like we've got a little bit of the the OG crew of athlete development from the pads world. So oh
1: yes, oh it's, yes,
0: uh, it's kind of good to kind of go down this road. And I think obviously we've all seen our careers do different things over time. Uh, and your career in particular, uh, Dr. Bedick's, has been quite interesting. You've kind of gone from the student athlete to the major professional. Uh, and you've got a real focus on mental health and wellness, obviously, uh, at the WTA level. So I guess let's jump into it. As you kind of look at the 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 landscape now of, of where we've come on mental health and wellness for athletes, what have you seen over your career and how have you seen it applied today?
2: Excellent question. Yes, you're right. I've finally gone pro, so <laughs> it took me a while. But I got them. Uh, well, it's very interesting because I've been involved in sports psychology, mental health for, it feels like forever. Uh, It's probably more accurate to be about 25 years throughout my professional career. So for me, this was always part of the narrative. It was always part part of the conversation. And certainly in the last few years, COVID absolutely accelerated the conversation and brought it to a more public level. I think we have seen more conversation, deeper conversation, and I've had a lot more media requests to talk about this new thing called mental health. And so what I love is when they ask me these questions and I kind of say, "Well, gosh, we've been at the dinner party for decades. We're just really happy you all have joined us." Because it has been a conversation anytime you talk about how an athlete performs, you're not just going to be able to talk about their body in motion. It really is a holistic approach of how their mind and their body interact.
0: Couldn't agree with you more. The the idea that an an athlete is going to perform well consistently if they're under you know, significant mental health challenges is just not realistic in any way, shape or form. So out of curiosity, when you look at your experiences at the student athlete level and now having made the jump to pro, what would you say are the biggest differences that you've sort of come across in terms of how you handle those issues at the student athlete level versus the challenges that maybe you're facing at the major professional level?
2: I'll start with similarities, which was not your question, but I like to talk about it because I I like to go from the known to the unknown. That's the educator in me. And so being able to work with roughly the same age group that I've worked with on the collegiate level with our WTA athletes who are just kind of starting out, it's, it really is, is a more close comparison to the age group and the developmental things that those two groups of individuals are going through. I think when you look at differences on the elite level and the athletes with whom I have the privilege of working, they are their own team they are each woman is a ceo of her own team so she has her own physio she may or may not have her own coach she may or may not have her own mental health specialist or sports psychologist or mental performance skills specialist so they get to pick and choose who they put around them some of them can afford a very large team some of them can't afford much of a team at all especially when they're first starting so it's the people who are in their lives that they get to choose versus on the collegiate level You join a team that's kind of already in progress. And so you're adopted into this system that already exists. So that's where it looks a little bit different in the sense of with our women working with them on decision making and values clarification. And how do you know who you want in your your stratosphere, so to speak? Uh, And there's a certain level of pressure to that. I think some of the other things that we've seen and the WTA has been doing research on stressors on their athletes for decades. So again, this conversation's been going on for quite some time. And so when we talk about self-expectations, when we talk about media expectations, uh social media certainly has been an influencer in that. Uh you know, there but for the grace of anything, when I was playing college sports there was no social media out there. And I think our athletes today really have that as a major aspect of how they form their identity. It does affect them, uh, and it is something that they have to deal with that certainly wasn't always present.
0: I think one of the things I do want to point out to those that are listening to this podcast is that if you are not aware, the WTA has been doing cutting-edge research in athlete development space for, like you said, I believe it's close to 30 years, longitudinal research uh, of the highest order. Uh, So for those of you that haven't had a chance to have a a spin through the literature, you should definitely uh, check out the work that the WTA has done in the past. And I know that's ongoing work that you guys continue to do in terms of collecting data and research uh, in order to better understand the phenomenon of athlete development. So it's a great point. I think one of the things that kind of jumps to mind as you're talking about where, you know, so this, this arc goes for an athlete, you know, particularly when you're talking about tennis players. And they're kind of like you said, they're their own CEOs. And I know we kind of talked about this before we jumped on, but when you look at the challenges that are faced by these individual athletes that are traveling literally all over the planet uh, to compete in these tournaments when they they may or may not have a support staff, how do you think the the travel... Uh, as a component of the lifestyle that these athletes are forced to sort of live by, does that play a significant role in how they have to manage their mental health and their overall well-being?
2: Absolutely. Now, I will tell you my frame of reference. I've been with the WTA for just over two years. So if you think back to two years ago, that was October of the or September actually of the pandemic. So my entire experience of traveling with the WTA is during the pandemic time. So I can't really speak to what it was like pre. And as we're slowly kind of crawling our way through this process, it's changed a little bit in the the couple of years I've been doing it. But I would say for our athletes, 100%, the travel can be very taxing and can be very wearing. When you think about the things that have you uh, kind of boost your mental health, being in a familiar surroundings, having familiar food to eat, having a routine, having structure, those kinds of things that really can aid in being able to be more stable are not as uh, consistent when you're traveling from country to country, week to week. You're in, sleeping in you know, strange hotel rooms and with strange noises. The wear and tear of travel, whether your luggage gets there or it doesn't. I think every player has at least one spare set of clothes in their carry-on because their bag may or may not get there. Throughout COVID, there was the added stress of, are you going to get into a country? And are you going to get it back out of the country on the other end? what paperwork do you need? What vaccines do you need? I mean, there was a whole other layer of logistics that had to factor into the time that you spend investing. Um, I can remember, for example, some countries, you have to have a negative COVID test to enter within a, 24 hours, Some are within 48 hours. Well, if you're traveling somewhere that takes you 24 hours to get there, you have to do a lot of mental math, which is not my strong suit to make sure that you, once you made it to that country, you could actually get in and you hadn't timed out with your test. So certainly that wear and tear every week is a factor in how they work to stabilize their emotions and, and plan for what they need to do to be able to perform.
1: Becky, I know you were interviewed and during the interview, you talked about that athletes are humans first. And so, you know, they're, they're carrying the weight of being an athlete performing at their elite level being televised, you know, all the pressure that comes with it. So for those that are listening that work with these athletes, what can they do to, to support them from a holistic approach in, in the mental health space since they are, you know, especially, you know, when you came into the, the WTA with the COVID and, and that added pressure, what can individuals in this space do to, to support the athletes?
2: Such a great question. And it's as the answers are as varied as the athletes themselves. You know, they are individuals. And before any of our athletes ever picked up a tennis racket, as you said, they were daughters, they were sisters, they were somebody's best friend. And so they are humans first and foremost. And one of the things that we really find is well received by the athletes is just being part of the environment. And I realize this is different for different environments and workspaces across the the arena, no pun intended. But when we are on site with our athletes, we eat where they eat. We're at the same hotels where they are. We take transport just like they do. We are just part of the fabric and the environment. Our athletes are very tied into our physio staff. They rely on them quite a bit to make sure that their bodies are feeling and working the way that they need them to do in order to perform. So we do a lot of referrals back and forth between our physio team and our team as well. I think letting them see you as a mental health helping professional as part of their world is, re- if you can, is really, really helpful because we kind of like to say, we borrowed this, this from one of our team members, we like them to, to know us before they need us. So the first time that an athlete meets me, I'm not coming to them when they're in crisis or coming to them when I need something from them but rather it's more, you know, I've seen you around. I know you're part of, of, and I know you get what we do. So I think that's one thing, just being in the environment. I think secondarily, listening, listening to their experience without assumption, without judgment, even if it's the athlete is starting the same story that you've heard six times, it's the first time they've shared it. So really making sure that you're listening to how they're interpreting their own experience is key. And then also following up, you know, they have our athletes have a lot of people making a lot of demands of them for their time for their, you know, energy to be able to perform to show up. And if we can just be somebody who's there for them, that's really helpful.
1: um, The way you answered the question in the beginning about being there and kind of not being reactive, I know that your team works heavily on prevention, so that more of that proactive approach. Can you share a little with us kind of the The methodology behind that, that you guys
2: take? Sure. The WTA does physicals used to be every other year. Now it's on an annual basis. And so we will do some screenings, fairly high level screenings, stressors that our athletes may be encountering concerns. They may have their process, you know, cognitions and process of of thought when they are approaching a match during the match, after the match, we just kind of get to know a little bit more about them and it's also an opportunity for us to share our services with them. So we work, you know, usually with our athletes, mental performance skills really is what come, brings them in the door because they'll say something, oh, I lost my serve. Or I, I really feel, you know, the crowd is a lot. That was a big thing as crowds started coming back. You know, you'd played for a year plus with no crowd and you could hear, you know, the, the janitor coughing three courts down as they're sweeping the, the court. And now all of a sudden there's there are the crowds and they're back and they're close to you and they're loud and there's an adjustment piece to that. So usually that's what brings them in the door. And then uh, we do have our mental health piece as well, where we'll talk with them about, again, their cognitions, their relationships, how they're managing some of these stressors that we have. Uh, We also talk with them what Duncan was referring to with the tour life skills. That's another approach that we use is how are you managing logistics? How are you managing your team? Are you, do you have financial folks around you that can help you relieve some of those pressures? We want to make sure that we help them help themselves untie any of these little knots they may have or bigger knot so that they can go and perform in the sport that they want to perform in the best to their ability.
0: Are there, you know, you just kind of mentioned a couple of different things there that you guys provide from a service perspective. Are there other points of emphasis that you guys have right now that you're really trying to key in as it relates to helping your athletes from a mental health perspective?
2: Well, I think, I don't know that this is really the answer you're looking for, but I think availability is a key piece to this. So telehealth, one of the, maybe the only benefit to this entire COVID situation has been our athletes' comfort with being able to hop on a telehealth appointment because they're so used to seeing everyone in boxes on their phones. And so being able to, wherever they are in the world or wherever we are in the world, continue a conversation for continuity of care that's been a really great approach for us to be able to take. So, you know, if, if we see them at this tournament this week, but we want to continue the conversation, but they're going to another tournament and we're going home or another clinician is coming to the tournament where they are, they can continue our conversation. So availability, uh, I'm not sure that that exactly. No, that's, I mean, that's
0: an interesting point of emphasis, right? Like the idea that your, your folks can get help when they need it. I think that's... That's a huge part of the puzzle, right? If you don't have that, then what are you doing? So I think that's fantastic. As a kind of a follow-up to that, then if, you know, this, this idea of availability and ensuring that your, your athletes are continuing to have access to things, I think one of the things that jumps to my mind, again, kind of going back to put you on the spot as relates to comparing your experiences working with student athletes, you know, obviously you're probably dealing with real high-end, both male and female, and now obviously you're dealing with elite female athletes. I'm curious if there's been any perception to you that there's a difference in the needs of the, of the student athlete that the male versus the elite female major professional athlete. I'm just curious if there's anything there that you've found that's maybe been interesting that maybe you didn't expect, or is it relatively similar?
2: That's an interesting question. I, I really would see it as, again, what we've talked about, humans first, and what is this each individual need? So, I really kind of look at it as you know what degree of care does this athlete need at this time, and whether they're male or they're female, it's important because it's part of their identity or however they tend to identify it's part of their identity. but I certainly would not say because you are a male, I would expect these things to be this way, or because you are female, I would expect things to be this way. you know not only are you dealing with kind of a a gendered conversation, you're also dealing with levels of expertise, levels of, of funding, levels of involvement in their sports. I mean, for the women that I get to work with, they are doing this as a career. For the collegiate athletes I, I work with, some of them, that was the end of their athletic career. And they know that. And they kind of have timed out their commitment level to, to match their graduation. Whereas these women want to take this as far as they can go. And this is, this is how they have decided to spend you know, their, the beginning of their, their career. And for a lot of them, a major difference when we're talking about pressures or or potential anxiety concerns around sport. A lot of our women professional athletes are also supporting not just their teams, but supporting their families as well. So that's a little bit, uh, not even a little bit, but that is a major difference that I see between collegiate athletes and pro athletes is if the pro athletes have other commitments to people besides themselves financially and, and otherwise.
0: And that's got to be particularly challenging for your sport in that no performance, no paycheck. It's uh, pretty binary that way. So I'm sure that adds a whole degree of, uh, of stress, like you say, if you have an athlete that uh, is supporting a range of different people, but isn't getting the placements to get paid. So That creates a whole dynamic, I'm sure.
2: It absolutely can factor into that, especially when you have athletes who are playing for their country's federation or athletes who are playing for different invested individuals. They And at the core of it all, though, they want to play. You know, nobody doesn't want to play. They want to play. They want to perform. They want to be you know, competing. And so that's a self-expectation as well as the external expectations we talked about a minute ago.
0: And I think last question here for me, well, I shouldn't say last question. That's probably a lie. But one more question before I kick it over here to Stephanie. But I'm just kind of thinking about, too, you talk about the idea of availability and being in the environment. And it sounds easy. I just need to be here. And everything will work out fine. And I'm curious as to how you approach that sort of intentional or conscious idea of if we are going to be here in this environment, how are we going to do this in a way that makes us more welcoming or you know, the opportunity for a greater level of engagement with the athlete? What's your approach or their approach that you, you have your team take when you're doing that?
2: Again, proximity is, is a huge factor in that. Just being in and around the environment. They may not know you, but they know that you understand their world because they've seen you in their world. There is a massive difference between I play tennis and I'm a tennis player. And so when an athlete walks in, they don't have to explain to me what they do for a living. I get it. I'm watching it. I see it. I'm, I'm you know, somewhat living it in proximity to, to them. So when we're in the environment, not only are we just around, we're not just standing around holding up the walls. But we're also engaging with the athletes, even a simple hello. You know, sometimes when you're on tour and you're seeing the same people all the time and there's a new face, that, that can be kind of exciting. They have somebody they haven't seen in a while. So saying hello to them, greeting them. Um, you know, we get a lot of ideas from our player council. I may have always been a massive proponent of let's talk to our, our quote customers. So we had some player council members who said, you know what? Why don't we have coloring books in the training room? And so we went out, we bought a bunch of coloring books and colored pencils, and we put them in the training room with a little sign that said, stay a while, color a page, rip one out, take it on the plane, courtesy of WTA Mental Health. And a small thing like that, it doesn't have to be a big grandiose production, but something small like that has really made a difference. Now they'll bring in the pictures or they'll send a picture of themselves coloring. I always have gummy bears. (laughs) People will come visit you for a lot of reasons, but gummy bears is pretty universal draw. You know, at the last tournament where I was in Guadalajara, uh, I had a bunch of stickers that I just bought off of, you know, online, and they're all very motivational messages. And a lot of them are female empowerment, but not all. And, you know, it's, you grow through what you go through kind of stuff. And, you know, you know, she believed she could, so she did. And I just taped them to my door and said, which message speaks to you? Put a little sign. And the women would come by and grab a sticker and kind of put that on their phone. And they'd walk by and they'd just show me their phone. So small cultural you know, inroads like that can make a great deal of difference if you're just around and engaged with them. And if they know that they can talk to you for five minutes or talk to you for an hour and both are just fine, that helps too.
1: Because you're creating and fostering an authentic relationship. You're not asking them for anything. You're just being there for them. That presence is everything.
2: Absolutely. And consistently.
1: Yeah. I do have a- another question with your with your group, the mental health and wellness team. You created the pillars of purpose. Can you mm-hmm. talk to us about the pillars of purpose?
2: Sure. I referenced those a minute ago. So that the four pillars of purpose that really drive the decisions we make, how we allocate our resources, what we can kind of advocate to the athletes is why we're here would be the mental performance skills. So as I said, that's what brings them in, usually, because they understand that the sports psychology part, then the mental health side, and really trying to normalize conversations of what mental health is. I think in popular media right now, when people say mental health, oh, she's working on her mental health they don't mean that they mean mental disorder or they mean mental dysfunction. So negative stigma. Absolutely. Yeah. This has been shoved in there and become this catchphrase for mental health. But you know, the IOC has done a phenomenal job with in this space. And one of the things that they have created, which we use all the time is this kind of lime uh, continuum that mental health is really A continuum from one side to the other of mental strength and mental, you know, health to things where your daily functioning is impaired, and we're all somewhere on that spectrum all day long. And you know, we don't want you flip-flopping too far back and forth in one day, but you can be anywhere on that spectrum, and so that's an important piece that we talk about in our mental health. And then, as I referenced, the two are life skills: Um, how do you manage yourself? How do you manage your team? How do you manage logistics? and maintain, you know, your leadership, maintain your, you know, hopefully lower level of stress. And then finally, we do critical incident management and safeguarding. So we don't do those investigations, but we do help and support athletes who feel that they have a safeguarding concern. If they decide that they want to bring it forward, then we will be their clinician throughout that. And then, you know, afterwards, as long as they need us. So those would be our four pillars.
1: And I think that's great just for those listening to hear that if they're looking to kind of create a structure how to support their athletes, you know, kind of categorizing in those different pillars
2: makes it easy because we know exactly what we do and we are sharing with our athletes what we do
1: exactly. the expectation is put out there, you know the goals, the objectives, the what ifs, the what twos, yeah,
0: what it surprised you? I mean I'm- you know, obviously, you're two years into this, and like you said, you just gone pro. Like, what's really jumped out at you? You're like, holy crap, didn't see that coming. How's how's that sort of played out for you?
2: I don't know if you call it surprise, but I am beyond delighted and overwhelmed by how brilliant our team is, and I think of that as the, the larger WTA team, not just you know our mental the wellness. I think they're brilliant for sure. But to expand, oh, hang
0: on it- so I got to you, not only brilliant but hardcore. I think I've said this before in this podcast. But anybody that thinks that the WTA is messing around, like this is like the SEAL Team 6 of Mm -hmm. athlete development. And I think I remember even talking to you about that. So like, yeah, they're no joke. The WTA is big time.
2: You did. And it is. You were exactly (laughs) right. I think it was before I took the job I was talking to you. And you used that analogy and it could not fit any better. We descend from all corners of the earth and we are on site for, you know, anywhere from one to three weeks. And then when that trophy is hoisted, it's like we were never there the next day. So, you know, just the brilliance and the diversity of thought of our team. I just love it. I learn something every single day from every single person on our team. The physios are so smart and they keep every athlete so straight and they know exactly what's going on with every athlete's health. They are partners of ours. We partner with them. And just to be able to pull off the things that that are pulled off in some of these places in the world that, you know, are newer to tennis or newer to putting on a tournament is awe-inspiring. So I would certainly say that.
0: And has anything ever jumped out about you in terms of dealing with the athlete? Or is that really just sort of stayed more or less within the same bandwidth that you're used to dealing with? Or is, is anything kind of jumped out to you there?
2: Again, with the athletes, it is how worldly wise they are. Because they do travel all around the world, but also that humanity piece as well. You know, we're fortunate in women's sports to some degree, and there's still a lot of room to go here, but that a lot of our women, thanks to Billie Jean King and her colleagues, are able to draw a very healthy paycheck from the work that they do. But despite, you know, the number of commas in their net worth or in their paychecks, that at their core, you know, they're they're the humans. They're the ones that could probably afford to buy a gummy bear factory, but will come in my office and see if I brought the gummy bears this time. And, you know, it, it's it's been a really great thing to see that they really, you know, in a large part really are enjoying what they're doing and really want to be part of that environment. You know, that we don't have the prima donnas, we don't have the folks who are untouchable, that they are appreciative of the things that we're doing for them as well. They're pretty amazing people.
0: Absolutely. I mean, like uh, the the mindset required to be successful as an individual athlete in a sport that requires you to be global, I think is, is, is really interesting. And I think that's kind of one of the things I wanted to ask you too, is that now you've kind of got this snapshot of where things stand as it relates to, you know, your, your last experience in this pandemic and in two years working at the professional level, where do you see mental health for major professional athletes going over the coming years? Do you sort of have a, an idea of where you want to see it go? Or where do you think the industry is going in terms of its relationship to understanding how to interact with their athletes around their mental wellness?
2: I love the fact that we're having more conversations. It's not a fad though. And so I'd love to see the conversations continuing and ways to get ahead of some things and be preventative and do more screenings and have it just be a normal part of your checkup every year. I mean, if we are working with athletes to make sure their bodies are well so we can ensure them and they can perform and play, your brain is part of your body. So isn't that just hard? Weird, of right?
0: How'd that happen? I
2: know. Crazy concept. And it really should be looked at as such. And so, you know, I also think we need to continue to encourage and embrace athletes who are brave enough to share their stories. You know, every time an athlete is in my office, it's a privilege. And that's one thing our team really takes to heart is that they, they would think that our athletes are living their lives out loud because everything that they do, every meal they eat is on social media and so on and so forth. So you're thinking that, you know, they're very transparent, but when someone is willing to sit down with you and share their authentic and true story, that is a massive privilege and they don't have to do it, but they've, they've come to you because they feel you can provide a perspective for them that they haven't been able to get on their own or through other people in their world. So as long as athletes are willing to share themselves, we have to be willing to listen and to learn from this. It can't just be a story of the week. And that's interesting. And they're all over social media until the next, you know, cat eats with a spoon or whatever social media thing comes up. It really has to be continuous and continue, continue that conversation.
0: I, could, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's probably uh, an interesting place to, to wrap it up right there. I and mean, that's, a, that's a snapshot now, for those of you guys that have been tuned in here for the last 30 minutes. I think it's very clear that you know, Dr. Bedick's here has uh, been fully indoctrinated into what I would describe the SEAL Team 6 of Athlete Development over there at the WTA. I think your insights are, are awesome. And again, I think your perspective on the industry, I think, is fantastic just simply because you, you've been around for... Now, you're, now, you know, as I'm saying this, I'm like, oh, Jesus, Fletch, you know, you're making her sound terrible. like, oh, how long have you been around? Maggie? Oh, my gosh. But I guess the point being is that your perspective, I think, is really unique and that you've been in this space, I think, longer than most people would realize in terms of you've been committed to sort of this athlete wellness, mental health for, for some time. So I think your perspective is, is lights out. So again, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this and um, hopefully you get a little rest and recuperation there before you're back on task at SEAL Team 6 over there at the WTA. Steph, I got to throw it to you. Do you have any last questions here?
1: No, just thank you so much. This was great. Um, Great experience that you've had. Great perspective and uh, a wealth of knowledge. And it's great to get the OG team back together again.
0: Back in the day. Back Back in the day.
1: day. We all started when we were two. So, I mean, you know, we are prodigies.
0: Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. right. There we go. Precocious. We were precocious. But with that, thank you again uh, on behalf of PADS and our global partners. Uh, a big thank you to uh, Dr. Becky algram of the WTA. Again, I urge anyone that's listening to this podcast, please make sure you check out the research that has been done by the WTA. It's leading edge and reflective of a very forward-thinking approach to athlete development in the field. So, again, please check that out. Becky, appreciate you doing this.
2: Thank you so much, friends. Good to talk to you.